Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Hey, welcome to the Master Mix podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Today's episode is with Ken Andrews. Now, if you're not familiar with Ken, Ken is a member of the band Failure. And in addition to an amazing career as a musician, he has also had an amazing career producing and mixing for bands like Jimmy Eat World, Paramore, Beck, and a whole bunch of other great musicians. Now, unfortunately, when we started recording this episode, we ran into some technical issues, so we got a little short for time. So today's episode is a bit of a shorter one, but nonetheless, it's still very value-packed. Inside of this episode, we get into some of my favorite aspects of Ken's productions, which are the sound of his drum tones. He just has an amazing talent of making drums sound incredible. And if you listen to any of the mixes that he's done with bands like Jimmy Eat World or Paramore, the drums just sound incredible. And he has this great way of making the track sound really big and full and polished. So we definitely get into that in this episode. And we also get into a really cool conversation about guitars and how to make a three-piece band sound really big. Because sometimes when you have few members in a band, sometimes placing guitars in the stereo field can seem a little lopsided. It can make a mix feel unbalanced. So in this, we talk about that and we discuss ways to make your tracks feel really beefy, really full, really wide. So I think you're going to really enjoy this episode. Let's not waste any time. Let's just jump right into it. All right, Ken Andrews, thank you so much for being on the Master Mix podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Real good. Awesome. For people who might not know your background or who might not be familiar with you, can you give us a little bit of your story on how you got into music and in, ultimately into production as well? I had a band in the 90s called Failure, and uh, we signed to Slash Records in in 1990 or 91. I'm a little confused about that, but right, right around that time. And uh, we made three records. In the 90s, we broke up in 97. But the last record we had made, the third record we had made, A Fantastic Planet, kind of lived on past the band breaking up in 97. It, it, it became uh, one of those albums that a lot of bands that you know were, were in the same kind of sound genre or whatever kind of latched on to. You know, people kept buying it and listening to it and getting into it. And it sort of had a the effect of uh, getting people were people started calling me, asking me to either produce or mix their albums. And so that was kind of my entry into production world. Um, and then I, I probably should say that we ended up failure actually ended up reforming in 2014. And we've made two two new albums since then and, and done a you know, fair, fair amount of touring as well. So we're, ba we're an active band again. In fact, we're in the middle of working on our third album right now. That's awesome. How did you learn to get into all of this? My first experience with recording at all was buying a cassette four track uh, in the late 80s, like 88, 89. You know, I was in college up here in Los Angeles uh, in the film department at Cal State LA. And so that was kind of like my, you know, quote unquote, chosen vocation path. <laughs> but um, I was loved music. And I just was super into, 
you know, trying to make my own songs and stuff. And I, I had a guitar, I had a bass, I had a Carvin combo amplifier, I think, 158, SM58, sure. And a cassette four track that the Taz, it's a Tascam model, like a rack mount one that didn't really have a mixer on it. I mean, it, it just had a knob for each track that you, that was the level of it. And, and, and then it had a concentric knob around it. That was the pan. So that's, I mean, I spent a lot of time on that machine and then, uh, we ended up like I said, signing to Slasher, and we made our first album with Steve Albini. So I got to see, you know, the inside of a real recording studio at that point. And I was super into, you know, everything about recording and, and, and being in the studio making music. So, you know, I just absorbed everything I could in the, in that like three week session with uh, Steve then we made a second record, uh, which we kind of ended up doing mostly ourselves, producing and recording-wise. We did, at the end, though, hire um, a really good mixer who is actually no longer with us now, um, David Bianco. And uh, he mixed that record, and I got to learn a lot from him. That was the first time I got to be around a big SSL 4K console. That was kind of like my story of experience leading up to Failure getting the chance to make our third album, where we basically had asked the label if we could use our third album budget to just buy some recording equipment and rent a house and move into it and, and make the record ourselves without a you know sort of industry um, known producer. And much to our manager's surprise, the label actually agreed. And they were like, yeah, we actually, we actually like the demos for the second record better than the finished record that you turned in. So if you're going to give us something closer to the demos of the second record, we're all for it. Here's your money. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. That, yeah, that's such a, such a rare thing to happen these days where the label's willing to just let you do your own thing and spend that money on your own studio and whatnot. And it obviously says a lot about the level of skill that you had at that time to be able to make those demos sound as good as they were so that you can get ultimately convince the label to help you make this third record. That's amazing. Yeah, I'm not sure that they sounded good in the traditional sense of like audio engineering, but they did have a vibe and a real distinct style to them and kind of, you know, sort of experimental sounding and and and, and definitely unique. So and and slash was one of those labels that was yeah, they were they like that sort of stuff. They like left of center uh recordings um they liked that you know if you look at the bands that were on the label at the time there's there's not a lot of similarity between all of them i mean there was like l7 which was way more kind of straightforward and grungy than us there was faith no more los lobos uh violent femmes I mean, it was like kind of like a very e eclectic mix of, of artists on that label. And I do have to fully give them uh, props for letting us uh, make that third record, Fantastic Planet, the way that we wanted to. That's amazing. Yeah, you actually brought up kind of a, an interesting 
point of discussion, which is the idea of vibe versus like the technical production side of it. And, you know, I think that that is something that I feel like I get very polarizing opinions when I do this podcast, because some people are just all on one side or the other. Where do you stand when it comes to that? Like, it, what's more important to you, like get, capturing that vibe and the rawness of a band? Or is it more about kind of making a polished sound now, especially now that you've had a little bit more experience and, and have built up your chops even more? Like, where do you stand on that? It's probably a case by case basis. I mean, th- there's some bands that are artists where I have worked with them where they already have a body of work and it's pretty polished sounding. You know, so, you know, and they're not, and and my take on it is that they're not hiring me to like reinvent the wheel. They just kind of want like a slightly different vibe and, but they want to, you know, stay in line with their uh, discography they've made all since, you know, beforehand. So in those cases, it would just seem kind of weird to like purposely make it you know, raw and, and unpolished. But then, you know, you listen to a band like Black Keys and it's like, okay, that band wouldn't be the band they are if they had super polished sounding records. I mean, not to say that they actually don't spend time crafting their sound in the studio, but the, you know, they're not necessarily trying to make it all smooth and, and you know, correctly whatever that means, like correctly recorded, they're looking for vibe all the time. It, it just kind of depends on, on the artist. Yeah, totally. And and it's interesting that you said the fact that uh, you've worked with a bunch of bands that have kind of a proven track record of having more like pristine recordings and, and that kind of thing. And one band that you've worked with that I've always found that with is Jimmy Eat World. And to me, like they've always had amazing sounding recordings where everything is super clear and polished. And, uh, you know, it seems like they're the kind of band that probably pays a lot, pays attention to a lot of the fine details. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Oh no, you're not wrong about that at all. <laughs> well, that's a band that has made a lot of records now and super experienced musicians live musicians and studio musicians pretty much all of them so and then you know zach the drummer and jim the singer are fully qualified producers to me in and of themselves um you know their their involvement and their attention to detail and their notes uh, um when i've been mixing their records have been just like you're you're basically working with producers at that point in 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 my in my mind because they know the lingo, they know exactly what they want most of the time, and um, it's a different vibe when you're working with an artist that is that experienced. It's in a lot of ways it's more efficient because you there's not um, there the, like there's no language barrier in terms of like they can tell you, oh man, snare sounds great, but there's too much 4K in it, you know? <laughs> um, and so they'll just tell you, you need to dip some 4K, right? Right. So, but the getting them to be totally happy and, and signing off on a mix, that aspect of it can be a little bit more challenging because their ears are so 
experienced and and detail oriented. That makes a lot of sense. I, I totally understand that. I can relate to that with my, even my own band. Like I was in a band full of same thing. It was like all different producers. One was a mastering engineer. One was a, a another producer. I did my own thing. And it's like when you when sometimes when you have that technical knowledge, it's it's it can become a little much because everyone wants to take control of it. And so you know the traditional role of hiring a professional to do the job for you kind of that doesn't exist in the in those kind of situations but it also at the same time makes for some great recordings too because you can collaborate a lot more like you said yeah i mean that you know a band like jimmy world they're they, they're fu- fully capable of making albums all on their own they bring in other people because they want that creative bounce they they just they like the collaboration of it and also I know for Jim in particular, I think it helps him to kind of zoom out a little bit, you know, and and not have to always get, maybe let someone do the heavy lifting on the details of certain things, you know what I mean? So he can kind of be a little bit more zoomed out as, you know, kind of like the songwriter and, and um, you know, overall auteur of the whole thing. For sure. Do you feel like there's a, a pressure to working with a band like that who has that track record? Does it does it change how you approach your projects? Yeah, it's different in the sense that, you know, you just got to be on your game the whole time. You can't slack, but that that's kind of goes for every gig. I guess it's more like instead of kind of just like doing your own thing and kind of bringing the band along with you, it's more like they're kind of like driving the ship and you're more of a facilitator. I mean, there's still moments where your creativity, it gets to, you know, shine. Like you could show them a, a, a mix idea or a, even an arrangement edit or something, and they might like it. Um, but, you know, they're firmly, you know, in control. I kind of like all, all those different permutations of artists, you know, some who are a little more loose in the studio and maybe less concerned once they get their performance in, they're just kind of waiting to hear the mastered album. And then there's other artists who are just like there just the whole time, like just getting into the weeds with you. It's, I like them both. So like aside from the normal cleanup of making your track sound really nice and clear, like how do you go about approaching more creative moves and mixes? Is it something where maybe you give a band a couple of different variations of things just so they can hear it like with and without the big creative decision? Or is it, I guess in the case of Jimmy at World, maybe it's a little bit more collaborative. I actually kind of avoid the two version thing <laughs> as much as possible for i mean for a couple reasons one if i am going to introduce a new idea that they haven't heard in a mix um i just want them to hear it and just like let them maybe live with it for a little bit like at least a few hours before they're like no 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 it's not the same it's not the same because you know i think a lot of artists including myself, you know, you get into this thing where you've heard a version of this song for potentially months, you know, or you've heard several versions of it. And so if a mixer comes in and kind of like changed, changes the point of view of, of the mix somehow, it can take a while for an artist to kind of like let go of the other versions they've heard and sort of accept a new version and and be able to judge it on its on its own terms if that if that makes sense uh so no usually what i do is i'll just be like hey 
This song is amazing. I love it. I really went for something in the bridge. I doubled its length and I flanged it, you know, to, <laughs> or whatever, you know. Um, let me know what you think. If it's not cool, I'll send you um, the, you know, the, the more normal version, like, right away. Um, but I do like people, I do per encourage artists to kind of live with a mix for a while before they completely uh judge it because like i said they've been hearing roughs maybe the producer made and you know these days some of the producer uh roughs are just like really good you know because they've been um chipping away at that blend at those blends and and that mix for sometimes a month because they're working all in the box when they're when they're recording it so you know that's a whole other problem we could talk about <laughs> <laughs> yeah demo itis gets in the way for sure <laughs> yeah absolutely that, oh, that's a great answer i love that um you, earlier you had mentioned that you originally went to school for film so i imagine that having that background you probably i would imagine that you probably approach music in a kind of visual way does, does would you agree with that like do you kind of envision what your mix would look like if it were set to video well, or like picture? colors or a music video um, yeah yeah actually not 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 really i mean i just i work off i mean to me music is about emotion and feelings and that's kind of what i work off of um you know how does it make me feel when i hear the rough of a song that i'm about to mix thing i want to do first is zero in on why what's cool about this song you know why what is the feeling that they're going for have they achieved it uh in the rough does it need some other um changes in it to fully accentuate it and fully like exploit the 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 best parts of it um that's that's what i zero in on i'm i'm not thinking about making a film about it or, or or stuff like that having said that there have been a few times where i've heard a song and yeah I, I i see a video in my head but most of the time it's i'm just kind of more focused on the the emotion gotcha yeah i know that for some people even when it comes to things like panning and that kind of thing it's like they, they almost visualize as a if band. a band were in front of them yeah or something i like think that. i do that a little bit sometimes if if, if the vibe is very like if the vibe that they're going for is bandit playing in a room and there's not a lot of other overdubs you know uh yeah that's that that's definitely a cool thing you can do where you kind of have the drums spread out and maybe have the bass like just barely tilted to one side you know what i mean and then like the guitar barely tilted to the other side and then ambience of both of those instruments kind of filling out the stereo field totally into that that way when you hear it it's like you, you, you can literally almost see oh the bass player's standing over there yeah that's exactly what a live show would look like yeah right? yeah so that makes total fun. sense that's fun but you know i mean i don't know working on trio music where it's just you know or or even a four piece or whatever you want to call it like i don't know a lot there's not a whole lot of super strip stuff that i'm that i've been working on in the last couple of years like that well even with a trio i, I think that there's like 
there is an element of kind of having a vision for a song, right? Because if you only have one rhythm guitar and then bass and drums, like sometimes like you have to find that way to make your mix sound full and wide still, you know, and or at least like not lopsided. So so I'm curious to get your opinion on that, just in terms of like when it comes to recording a, a three piece and working on your music, you know, how do you go about positioning things in your mixes or, or envisioning what where should where things should be? Yeah, it's a, that's actually a good question because I'm right in the thick of it right now making this new Failure album. And this is a, a question that I've been asking myself actually ever since we sort of rebooted in 2014 is is what is, what is the picture of the band that I'm trying to kind of paint there? Is it is it the three of us in a room? Is it a little more layered than that? And, you know, to be honest, I'm, I'm still kind of finding the answer to that question. I don't, I don't think I have it yet, but um, there is some times, and there have been a few times on the previous two records and this record where I'm just like, I really want to make this sound like th there's just three performances. And the thing that I've been really getting into to like you said make fill out the sound field uh with really just the three perform well four performances if you include the vocal but let's let's just talk about drums bass and guitar like one single performance of drums one single performance of bass and one single performance of guitar like how do you do that and then the main tool that i've been using is the fractal audio axe effects because it is so flexible and fun to uh, create presets in there that are really quite stereo, and f but but from one single performance. Gotcha. Is that because you're using like uh, with the single guitar, for example? Like uh, that's that's where I find most three piece bands. You know, they'll double track guitar and pan things hard left and right so that you at least get the fullness that way. Would you say that with the fractal, are you using like two different cabs and maybe using those to pan left and right or something like that? Oh yeah, uh, every like two different amps, two different cabs, two different, completely different um, like effects chains, both before and after the amp block there's just i mean you can go nuts you can literally go nuts in there and you know i'm just kind of sitting i always kind of have my finger close to the mono button on my control room section so i can constantly kind of make sure i'm not going too far out of phase with the stereo information and that it still still works in mono yeah, that's that's a really important point because I think a lot of people skip over the phase check and then they realize after the after the fact that it just falls apart and doesn't quite work. So good good good, good point to bring up there for sure. <laughs> you especially realize it when like you get this mix in stereo and it's like, "Oh my god, the guitars are just like so epic." And then you hear that same mix coming out of an iPhone speaker like the next day and you can't hear the guitar or it's so low, like you can barely hear it. That's when you got to go back and kind of un unpack what's happening and figure out what uh, stereo elements are canceling each other out. So is it usually just a matter of phase that you're hearing that issue or is it uh, is there something else that contributes to that? Well, when you use two different amps that are maybe like quite different, like like 
even you can have two different amps that have you know the same kind of like uh level of sustain or distortion whatever you want to call that but the attack profile and the sustain profile can be wildly different so even it's just two amps with nothing else can sound pretty stereo because like the attack is slower on one or and maybe the sustain is longer on the other or something so just that alone can give you a stereo effect and those differences tend to not have any real phase issues because fractal is actually got to give props to them they've been really good at uh keeping cabinet alignment and and amp alignment really in phase uh, in the box. I mean, you, you kind of, it, if you're just doing that, just two different amps and two different cabs, it's pretty hard to get things like wildly out of phase. It's more like with effects where you start like adding in a chorus on one of those amps. Sometimes you need to play with the phase on the chorus effect. Gotcha. So will you like time align things and nudge things around if you need it? No, I, 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 I get the sound in the fractal box and then print it. And by the, if I'm already printing it, then I know it's, you know, I know it's fine for mono compatibility time aligning, like, like tracks and regions in pro tools. I sometimes will do that on a drum kit. If I feel like there's an issue or if I want say the, say, say the, the the room the drums were recorded in was kind of small and when you turn up the room mics you're not really getting any real size you're just kind of getting a different sounding drum mic sometimes in those situations if it sounds good i will select the those regions and start plus them down but downstream you know for a hundred samples until it st starts sounding like cool sometimes it doesn't sound cool because it's too phasey the whole the whole way and you never find a sweet spot that sounds right but other times it's like whoa right in there right like maybe it's like 12 milliseconds or something you you happen on something where like the snare gets all this dimension and you know it's it's worth it to kind of explore uh different different alignments with with the drum mics but I, I would say for the majority of of my drum kit mixing um, these days, most most people have a pre pretty good idea of how to record, and so a lot of times I'm just putting up the faders and going, "Wow, this is a great picture of the drums," and I'm just I'm kind of like more like fine tuning things. Yeah, I mean it's it's interesting you brought up drum room mics because to me one of the things that really stands out with a lot of your mixes is your drum tone and I think you have an awesome ear for finding a really solid blend of the close mics and the room tones and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your process for deciding you know how big drums should sound in a mix and and how you make those decisions for for your songs. Yeah, that's a good that's a very good one. There's I mean because there's sometimes where you you know the vibe of the drum kit is you want it to be kind of static throughout the song as in like the drum sound you hear in the intro is the drum sound you want to have for the whole song and 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 you've blended the room mics at a certain level that just feels like stylistically the right choice for that song and then there's other songs where you kind of want to actually ride 
the ambience of the drums throughout the song uh, and kind of like make it a performance in a way where you're uh, sort of giving the impression that the drummer in the chorus or in the bridge or wherever is hitting harder and uh, therefore exciting the room more when that may be the case, but you're accentuating that by bringing up the room mics uh, a few dB in level. Um, so there's definitely a lot. If you were to look at the last, I don't know, hundred mixes I've done with, with drum kit, you, you would see that, yeah, there's the tracks, but quite often I am chopping up the room mics and even the overheads and, and all the drums really in some cases and putting them on their own separate tracks for different sections of the song. That's awesome. I love that. that. I think that that's, you know, those are the things that most people don't notice necessarily when they're listening to a mix, but those are also the things that give the mix its character as well and give you that energy and that vibe. So that's really cool. Um, I know that like when it comes to drum tones and drum rooms, you know, there's kind of a fine line sometimes where when you push the volume of your room tone, sometimes it can create a lot of mud for other instruments in your mix, like your guitars and, and vocals and that kind of stuff. Do you have any tips for dealing with that? Well, I would say one of the main issues that like, you know, kind of aggressive rock music has with, with drum kit mixing and, and recording is cymbal control. Cymbal control is like one of the main things that I deal with all the time. Um, you have to, because symbols, you know, rock, rock, rock symbols are loud, you know, just the nature of the beast. They're just loud. They excite the room. They saturate the room often. So you'll, in the verses, you'll have this, um, like really great, uh, room mic tone where like, you feel like you're getting a nice balance of the whole kit hitting those mics. You know, the drums themselves, kicks, snare, toms, the metal, hi-hat, ride. It all feels good. And then go into the chorus, and the drummer starts riding on that, washing that ride out or washing a cymbal out for a section for intensity. And it needs to be there for, for that intensity to be there. But sometimes you're running into a situation where that cymbal swamps your room mics and all of a sudden that that ambience that really nice sort of halo of ambience on your snare drum gets swallowed up by so what do you do then yeah well a lot of times in those cases if if the room mics to me are not very usable throughout the whole song because of cymbal issues a lot of times what i do is i basically synthesize room mics by using uh, room simulation plugins. Gotcha. So you'll, ju you'll just send your close mics to, to like, I don't know what, si what sims you might use, but like maybe something like the Ocean Way Room plugin or something like that? Ocean Way Rooms was a hu huge part of my workflow for many years, actually. Um, and, and I do still use it for certain things, but my current favorite room sim plug in is the IK Multimedia Sunset Sound uh, plugin. Cool. I haven't, I haven't heard of that one. I'll have to check that out. You absolutely need to check out that plugin. It's one of the best values in reverbs 
out there i think it's it's just it's just so i i've i have a soft spot in my heart for that studio because i've actually worked there a few times and the rooms all kind of have a different sound to them the live rooms themselves it's just a great plug-in because they've what they've done is for each there's three studios there one two and three and for each one you get the live room you get the iso booth you get the plate the actual hardware plate that's associated just with that room that's in a closet somewhere and you also get the chamber that is associated with that room um so it's just i don't know it's just the and and what i love about it is they haven't like smoothed out the irs like a lot of them have what you might consider to be troublesome resonances and and you know kind of weird weird overtones but that's the magic you know <laughs> that's that's the cool stuff and just be able to click through you know like i said you set up your sends on your close mics and even on the overheads and sometimes even on room mics i'll even send those back into another room um just be able to click through those three different rooms there at sunset they all have a super different kind of profile to them is really cool and and if you're a bedroom recordist i mean man like that studio is not cheap to work in so having the all the ambiences which in a way I'm, why do you go to a studio you go because the mic locker the console and the ambiences yeah. Um, and they put all that into, well, they put all their ambiences and reverbs into one plugin. And last time I looked, they were had it on sale for like $100, which seems kind of weird, weird to me. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, that, I love that. I love the idea of how you would shift in the middle of a mix to an artificial room just to, you know, cover the the symbol issues with the with your room tracks i think that's that's brilliant to do that um you know i think i've heard of some people who will track drums like shells separately than cymbals just to get around that problem and i don't know that that necessarily is the best solution for most bands but um but i I love the way you're i've tried it i've tried it i've never found a drummer who played the same when they were doing that technique it's just not it's just not possible to if you're a drummer you play the drum kit you know the whole thing together and and in that style of how you play i i'm much more about not really messing with people how they play the about the only thing i'll do is you know if i'm coming into a room and a drummer is setting up their kit if like the ride simple is like just like an inch off the top of the floor tom I might say, hey, would you mind just moving that up a couple inches? But I, I, I wouldn't make it. I, I mean, having tried it, I, I wouldn't waste too much time on trying to record symbols separate because I just you'll you'll never get the the feel the feel of the drummer that way. I think. Yeah, I think you're right. It's there's there's a a different weight and intensity that it takes as a dr- as a drummer when you're like digging into your cymbals and you know hitting the kick with it and that kind of stuff like your 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 body's into it as opposed to just like you know moving your hand and hitting a cymbal on its own just because you don't need to hit the drums like it changes the feel completely they're not drum machines they're they're a human musician you know that 
never had to probably do that before. So you're asking them to completely like kind of erase all this like drummer instinct they've been building for years. Yeah, absolutely. If you're going to do it, you have to prepare someone for that. You can't spring it up on them last minute no. in the studio because yeah. it'll never work. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> for sure. Well, I know that um, we're a little tight on time today, so I do want to get to the fact that you've recently started up a, a YouTube channel, which kind of has been documenting your process with mixing a bunch of the projects you've been working on. And I was wondering if you could kind of tell us a little bit about that and what people can expect with it and why you started it. I started it because, and I, and I kind of just have started participating in social media in general, really just in the last like two or three years, I kind of didn't really know what to do uh, with, with social media in general. And, you know, I did, I, w I would converse with people and some fans and stuff on there. And, you know, finally, I just a couple people just said, dude, you need to get on this more. Like, you you have a lot of knowledge that people would really enjoy uh, uh, learning more about, and and you know it seems like you have a lot of fun talking about it to me all the time. <laughs> so I just was like, yeah, why not? And I made I made a couple episodes just to see if it was fun, and it was fun. And so I'm I'm going kind of full on with it now um i have had a big break in the last couple of months because we've been like i said starting up the recording of this new failure album but i'm actually about to drop a huge three-part series on um how the mixing of uh this song i mixed well i mixed the whole album for this band called under oath they're like a hardcore band and uh, this song in particular, I think it was nominated for a Grammy. It's called On My Teeth. And it's one of the densest, loudest um, songs I've, I've ever mixed. And it was actually a real challenge. And I think, you know, people who are, um, you know, interested in let, uh, how do you get guitars to feel like just overpowering without the drums you know, sounding underpowered, like how do you get a competitive mix to speak in all those different ways? I think they're going to enjoy this series on, uh, on Under Oath. That's amazing. Yeah, I'll definitely have to check that out. Have you found that teaching this stuff online has actually forced you to revisit your processes and make them more streamlined or, or get you a little bit more clarity on why you make the decisions you do? 100%. 100%. Especially like go like for instance going back and looking at that under oath session and just seeing like how sloppy certain things were. <laughs> you know, because it's just me and I'm just sitting here, I don't have to make it look good for an audience or to to be clear to an audience. So, um, you know, I have to go through this process where I have to retain the sounds that I did on the mix but kind of make it make sense you know how did i get there how did why why is this eq even on like i have so many eqs that aren't even engaged you know why are they even there like what's you know templates and all of that stuff um it really has actually helped me be more efficient with um template organization and 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 stuff like that so yeah, I mean, like, isn't there a saint? Something like 
the person who learns the most in the teacher-student relationship is actually the teacher. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I've never heard that before, but I, I do like that a lot because, yeah, I, I totally understand with my own teaching. Just like you know, sometimes you you get you do things just out of uh, instinct sometimes, and you don't even realize you don't give it too much thought. You just do it, and then afterwards, if you look at your sessions, you're like, "What was I doing? Yeah, how like, would what? I explain?" The logic of this, because it on, on the surface doesn't make any sense, you know, like, for instance, I, I was looking at some EQs on a channel and it's like, I've got three different EQs on a single channel. Well, why, why not just do all of it on the first EQ? And I, I, I kind of, I, I unpacked that and kind of remembered what I did, and it was because the first EQ sounded too harsh to me in the high mids. I wanted a smoother, more rounder um, boost, and so I went to, you know, the more sort of um, neutral sounding fab filter EQ for that high mid boost, but then the low end boost, I actually went to like more, instead of doing an EQ, I brought in a, a subharmonic synthesizer. So yeah, it's like figuring out like, you know what you're doing while you're doing it in the moment. But I think, at least for myself, and I think a lot of other mixers, the thing you're trying to do when you're actually mixing is to work quickly and not get mired down in, you know, too much technical stuff. So that process of going back and looking at your mix and going, wow, this is kind of strange is <laughs> <it's, it's> fun, <laughs> but, and also really educational for me. For sure. But I mean, at the end of the day, you're still mixing with intent, right? No matter, you know, if you have the three plugins going, it's because in that moment you had an intent of like, I need to make this sound different and, and this plugin will do it for me. It's, it kind of forces you to like, maybe sit back a little bit and learn your learn the differences between your different tools and, and why you would use them in different scenarios and all that kind of stuff. So I, I love that you found that because I totally found that whenever when, when I started teaching stuff as well. So um, yeah, I love that. <laughs> awesome. Well, I don't want to keep up too much of your time. So um, for people who want to maybe follow you online and learn more about you, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, just search Ken Andrews on YouTube um, and you will find my channel. I'm the only Ken Andrews that's doing a music-based YouTube channel. I've, I think I got like 12,000 subscribers so far. So yeah, uh, it's good times, fun comment section, and um, come on over. Awesome. And lastly, are there any cool projects that you're working on right now that you can talk about? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm working on two things that aren't the failure record. Um but I actually can't. I I can't. Well, we'll have to just pay attention to your YouTube channel to find out more about that as they come out, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> awesome, man. Well, Ken, thank you so much for taking your time, taking the time out of your day to do this interview today. And I love everything that we covered here, you know, talking about the guitars and finding that that balance of creating the width in the track and even talking about the the drum room stuff. I, I found that really fascinating and, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners will as well. So yeah, so thank you for for giving us that information. It's great. My pleasure. All right, that was my interview with Ken Andrews, and that was really interesting. I really loved his philosophy on 
room mics when it comes to drums. And I loved how he uses automation to bring them up and down in certain parts of the song. And I like how he'll, he'll even switch up his room mic strategy and sometimes, you know, not use the room mics, but instead opt for a fake room sound using some plugins and a reverb. And I love just the description that he went into about how he does that, what kind of tools he's using to get that set up. And, you know, I think that when you listen to his recordings, you'll notice that his, his drums, like I said, at the very beginning of this, they sound incredible. Like he just has this amazing skill and he has a really good ear for identifying how much room tone to have in a mix and, you know, when to dial it back and when to go a little bit smaller. And so it's really cool to hear how he plays around with room tracks. And it was great to get to hear from him about his philosophy on that. So I hope you enjoyed that episode. And Ken, if you're listening to this, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Really appreciate it. And for you, the listener, thank you for sticking around to the very end. And if this is your first time listening to the Master Mix podcast, definitely make sure to subscribe and leave a review. That definitely helps to spread the podcast around to more people. And also make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com. That's a website where I teach musicians how to create pro-sounding recordings from their home studios so that you can use those recordings to showcase your talents in the best way possible and to use those recordings to also help grow your career, build your fan base, expand your audience. And if you're someone who wants to learn how to get into recording for the sake of becoming a professional engineer and getting bands to uh, hire you to work on their music, you're definitely going to learn a lot about that stuff on the website. So definitely make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com. There's a ton of great stuff on there. And one of my freebies that I have on the website right now is something that I like to call the Ultimate Mixing Blueprint. This is a guide to using EQ and compression in your mixes. And inside of that, we talk about how to use it across a variety of instruments in your tracks. We talk about drums, guitars, vocals, piano, a whole bunch of other stuff. So definitely make sure to check that out, MasterYourMix.com, and it's called the Ultimate Mixing Blueprint, and that will help you get results with your recordings much, much quicker. So that's it for this episode, guys. Thank you so much for sticking to the end, and I look forward to talking to you in the next one. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at MasterYourMix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit MasterYourMix.com.